We'll start today with a little bit of humor, courtesy of Barry Levinson. He tells a story that goes like this. When I was in Katz's Deli on the Lower East Side, I saw a woman ask for mayonnaise on her pastrami sandwich. I harassed her about it and got arrested. I was tried and acquitted because the court decided the real crime was the woman who wanted to put mayonnaise on a pastrami sandwich. <laughs> that story is, uh, was printed in an online article on Tablet Magazine, which is where I got the, if you can put the slides up, the picture of Abraham serving French's mustard to the three angelic visitors. <laughs> And Barry Levinson is also uh, where I learned that Barry Levinson is a Jew who founded and curates the National Mustard Museum because Jews, according to the article, uh, see mustard as the unofficial condiment of their community. So, but jokes aside, as I studied and looked over this two-chapter swath of scripture, um, <laughs> that our Bible quizzers get to quiz on tonight, I thought, you know, how do I take all of these stories that Jesus used to teach, all these parables, and, and, uh, and do it justice in one sermon? Because I could spend a whole week digging into each one, one at a time. So I thought I'd do something a little bit different, and I went back to the original purpose of why Luke, a well-educated doctor, wrote the book. He wrote the book of Luke to write an orderly account for Theophilus, who was a prominent Roman official who was a believer. And as I read and read and prayed over these two chapters of Scripture, I started to see not just how each story could be pulled apart individually, but how there really is an order to the teachings of Jesus in these two chapters. So I will uh, try to do this justice and give you a, no pun intended, bird's eye view of his teachings. And just to put this text into context, Jesus in Luke 11 going into 12 had just finished dining at a Pharisee's house where he issued stern rebukes and listed woes to the Pharisees and the lawyers. Now, the Pharisees were like blue-collar Jews, and they very uh, strictly adhered to what is known as the oral law. Now, the oral law were man-made traditions that were compiled and written down, and they really fleshed out how do we live according to the Mosaic law, which is written in Scripture, and we see that in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. So what they did was they created, I, I, can't, we, I don't even think we can count them, maybe Walter knows, how many ways that we can honor the Mosaic law and live according to the Mosaic law. But these were not given by God. These were created by people. So he lists these woes to the Pharisees and to the lawyers. Now the lawyers had, were... Um, doctors of the law or jurists who would give legal advice, and they worked in the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is like the Jewish Supreme Court, like we would think of the Supreme Court. Um, so they really worked closely with the Pharisees, and they had risen to pretty, pretty uh, prominent position in society by the time Jesus came on the scene. 
So Jesus is dining at this house, and like any good dinner guest, starts, you know, rebuking them and listing woes, right? Okay, well, he was doing God's work, right? So he lists these rebukes and woes, and he leaves the house, and as soon as he leaves the house, a large crowd gathers around him, and he launches into a teaching. And I, what I did was I took each block of teaching and I put it on one slide, if you change the slide, to show the flow of how these teachings go together. In uh, Luke 12, 1 to 8, he says, you know what? These religious leaders don't have the final word. God does. God is the one who has accountability, not religion, not fear of man. So don't worry. Leave it behind you. Leave that fear of religion, fear of man behind you. Then he goes into, and you know what? You don't need to worry about your day-to-day needs either. You don't need to worry about your spiritual provision and spiritual needs, and you don't need to worry about your physical ones either. God's got it. He loves you, and he'll take care of you. So don't worry. Then he goes, and he shifts into, well, if we shouldn't live that way, how should we live? Don't just leave the negative. Let's press into a positive. Be ready. Be generous with your time and your money. And then he shifts again, and he talks about his role as Messiah. And as we go into uh, Luke 13, he starts talking about you need to know the times you're in. This is really, really important. You must know the times that you're in. And then he ends with teaching about the kingdom of God. What is it like, and how do you enter? So, most of the rest, slide, rest of the slides, I put my um, synopsis up at the top. You'll see in the circle, in the gray, dark gray circle in the bottom, the verses. I had originally wanted to support our Bible quizzers and read through each of his teachings. However, it is a lot, and I think we would all like to eat dinner and get to the quiz match on time. So, I did leave them up on the slides, but I will just be pulling out bits and pieces um, as we go along. So Jesus launches into a teaching to the crowds talking about beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It's hypocrisy. This religion really amounts up to living a life of hypocrisy. You say that you're honoring God, you say that you're living for God, but what you're actually doing is you're not living in freedom, you're living in bondage. So he says, And he tells them, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are more valuable or you are of more value than many sparrows. Sorry, I don't hope I don't mess anybody up tonight. <laughs> um, anyway, so he was saying, God's opinion matters more than literally anyone else's. Live for God. Don't live to please man. Don't live to please a religious system. Live for God. Because God sees all things, he knows all things, and he loves you. He loves you a lot. Now, Jesus pulled out, uh, he used uh, the image of a sparrow. Now, rabbis, when they would teach, 
they would often uh, use things in the environment that they saw. Sparrows are pretty plentiful, so I have no doubt since Jesus was outside, there were probably sparrows flying around, singing their songs, perching in trees or on branches. But there were probably a lot of other birds too. And I thought, I wonder if there was a reason why he picked out the sparrow. And what I discovered was that in Jewish tradition, the sparrow is associated uh, with, as a bird that accepts only God's authority. It does not accept the authority of a cage or any person. It will accept only God's authority and fly freely and be what God made it to be and to live as God made it to be. When I think of a historical example of somebody who lived in this way, Martin Luther comes to mind. Now, we are all flawed human beings, so if you read into his story, you will see, as many of the Bible characters, he had flaws. But Martin Luther was a man who aimed to live to serve God. He broke away from what his parents' expectations were, and he said, you know what, I'm going to study, I'm going to become a monk, because I want to serve God. So in his studies as a monk, you know, he studied many books, he studied literature, he studied, studied history, and along the way, he got a Bible. That makes sense, right? He's studying to live for God. As a church leader, you would think he should have a Bible, right? Makes sense to me. However, he lived in the 1500s, and things were pretty different back then. Because in the 1200s, somebody named Thomas Aquinas had uh, discovered Greek philosophy, namely Plato, Aristotle, and Christianized them and said, you know what? This is how we're supposed to live. This is what we should be building our church doctrine on. So there was a, so much mixing of Greek philosophy in there that um, it was pretty muddied. It was very muddied. And it was to the point where as they studied to be church leaders, they just got a little little bit of Bible instruction and a lot of Greek. But Martin Luther, he got this Bible and he fell in love with the Bible. And as he aimed to serve God within the religious structures of the day, he saw a lot of discrepancies. And he said, you know, I don't think this is right. You're telling me that I need to do this to be absolved of sin, yet I do that and I still find that I'm, I'm in sin. And then you tell me I have to pay this indulgence and I'll be absolved of sin, but I pay for that indulgence and I spend all this money and I, we're, we're still in sin. And he said, this isn't right. And as he read the Bible, which people thought he was very strange for doing, by the way, in his day, he realized that it wasn't about how much money you spend and it wasn't about doing pilgrimages or going on trips or Anything that you do, it was about faith. It was as simple as faith, and it was free. And he said, everybody needs to know about this. Nobody knows about this. Literally nobody knows about this. So he set out to spread the word. Guys, you don't need to spend your whole bankroll paying for indulgences. It's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. 
And you would think people would be happy, right? The, the church leaders were not happy. They liked getting all the money. And so what Martin Luther set out to do was to live in the freedom of God as God intended it to be in the Bible. And he really only intended to bring some reformation to the existing church. However, we know historically that is not what happened and we have the biggest church split in history. But that's not what Martin Luther actually set out to do. He set out to right the wrong and to live in the freedom of the Bible. So Jesus goes on. Oh, and then there's another reason why I believe Jesus pointed out the sparrow. The sparrow is a clean bird, according to Jewish law. Hold on to that. We will come back to it. He then goes into the next part of his teaching, where he talks about uh, worrying about the day-to-day needs. And this, he springboards off somebody from the crowd, asks him a question. He asks him a legal question about his inheritance. And he says, you know what? Tell that, tell that my brother that he needs to split the inheritance with me. And you know, it seems like a legal question, right? It's a, it's a matter of right and wrong, black and white. And considering Jesus had just listed woes and rebukes to the lawyers and the Pharisees, and then says, you know, you don't need to worry about their opinions. It seems like a logical question that somebody from the crowd could come and present. But Jesus got right to the heart of the matter. I don't think the man was quite prepared for what Jesus said. First, he gave a pretty quick clarification. It's not my job. I'm not your guy for this. I'm not your judge. And then he continues on with his teaching. He weaves it right in. And he addresses the heart of the matter of Greed, being concerned with the day-to-day needs and having material wealth. And he talks about the story of the rich man who had to build bigger, uh, to tear down barns and build larger ones and to store, and there I will store all my grains and all my goods. And then in the end, he couldn't take it with him. So what was the point of all that? And then he talks about, don't be anxious about your life what you will eat, nor about your body, what you put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. And then he says, consider the ravens. He pulls out another bird. And then he goes on, and he doesn't stop there. Just hold on to that. And he says also, consider the lilies. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And then he says, how much more will God, will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Okay. So recently, I took my daughter to the bank to open a student checking account. When we went to make her first deposit, I had to put my debit card into the machine and um, so she could put her uh, first deposit into her account to officially open the account. When I went to put my debit card in the machine, it started beeping, bam, 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 chip error. And I was like, what? But okay. So I pulled out my card, and they go, ma'am, that debit card is not to our institution. And I said, are you sure? 
pretty sure I got it from this bank. And he's like, no, ours look a little different. And I was like, mm, I'm pretty sure I got it here. So they said, well, you have a sticker on it. Why don't you take the sticker off the top of your card, and we'll see where it's from. So I pulled the sticker off, and I read the name of the bank, and they said, oh, we changed our name in 2013. <laughs> and I said, really? And I said, well, I did get it here. And they said, can you look at the date on that? I, I, it might not even be in date. So I looked at the expiration date, and it had expired in 2010. Mm -hmm. I'm not even making that up. And so um, I, I don't think that is exactly what Jesus is talking about when he talks about not worrying about your money, not worrying about your day-to-day -day needs. I think it's probably more along the lines of somebody like Pastor Sam, which Pastor Island talked about last week, where he adopted 15 children who had nowhere to go. And every day, sacks of food show up on his door so he can feed his family. I think of George Mueller, who had 300 orphans, and one day he had no food to feed them, not anything. So he got them all ready, got them all dressed, sat them at the table, and blessed God and thanked God for the food. And there was a knock on the door. It was the baker. And he said, I couldn't sleep all night. God gave me such a heavy burden to, break, to bake fresh bread for you and your children that I stayed up all night baking loaves of bread. Could you use them? Yeah, it was just enough for everybody. It wasn't long after that, there was another knock on the door. The milkman's truck broke down just right in front of their door, and he had 10 cans of fresh milk. Now, this was in the 1800s, so refrigeration was not really what it is today. And he said, it's going to spoil could you and the kids use it? It was just enough for everybody. That's more what I believe Jesus was talking about here. But in this teaching, he, pulls, he uh, has two images. We're going to talk about the raven. We'll get to the lily later. The raven it appears to be a little bit conflicted in Jewish culture um, because they eat carrion, which is dead meat, so it makes them an unclean bird. Also, I'm pretty sure the Jews get quite annoyed by them. If you do a keyword search for raven, uh, you'll hear about them crying out all the time. Um, and the temple actually had metal spikes built into the roof to keep the ravens away from the sacrifices. So I'm pretty sure there were ravens in the area as Jesus was teaching, and maybe they were crying out who knows? But on the flip side, the ravens are part of Noah's story, where he sends the raven out looking for dry land. And they're also part of Elijah's story, because God used them to, to provide for Elijah in a very difficult time. So even though they're an unclean bird, unlike the sparrow, which was a clean bird, remember? Even though they're an unclean bird, they are very much associated with provision in the natural, in the Jewish mind. Notice, in these two stories, talking about spiritual needs and provision and talking about physical needs and provision, Jesus uses two different birds. One is clean, one is unclean. 
Just hold on to that, because I don't think it's coincidence. And it will come back later. But here Jesus shifts. And he says, okay, so if we leave behind all that, we leave behind religion, we leave behind the fear of man, we leave behind the cares of this world, we leave all that behind, how should we live? He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So again, don't just focus on being, getting out of the negative. I did that for a long time in my life, right? I focused around, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be like this. I'm going to try to not be like that. And I just spotted around circles of trying to not do something. But when you, you flip it around and you say, well, how should I be? What positive things should I be pressing into? It's so much better. There's so much more freedom in that. So don't just come out from under that. Press into this. Press into being generous with your time and with your money. Invest your resources into the kingdom of God because God's got you. He loves you. He will take care of you. Steward what God has given you, which means use it. If he's given you a gift, if he's given you a talent, use it for his kingdom. Give it back to him. Notice. Again, two images that Jesus uses. When he talks in the last portion where he talked about don't worry about your day-to-day needs, he talks about the lilies. And he connects the lilies with Solomon. Right? Solomon wrote a book, well, traditionally it's ascribed to him, called the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, which is a book of poetry in the Old Testament. It's a book of poetry that really highlights the love of a couple as they enter into the covenant of marriage. And then in this part of the teaching, he talks about a wedding. I don't think it's coincidence. We have the benefit of hindsight to know what Jesus came to do, that he came to fulfill the first covenant and establish a new covenant In ancient Jewish times, the engagement period, it wasn't like it is today. It was a serious commitment. It it was like a covenant. It just wasn't fulfilled yet. We know that the times that Jesus is teaching this, that the Jewish people were living under a covenant that needed to be fulfilled. And Jesus was dropping some serious code here. I don't think they quite picked it up, but... He was dropping serious code that this covenant that you've been living under is about to be fulfilled. I'm here. This is what we're doing. And we're going to bring humanity out of this engagement period into a wedding, into like a marriage covenant with God where you can be fully united with God through him after the work on the cross. Who's ushering in a new era. And Peter says, there's a little bit of a shift here. He says, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us 
or to everyone else as well? And he answers his question with a parable that sends the following message, yes and yes. Yes, it's for you, and, but you have a higher level of accountability because you have been given more. And then he transitions from this teaching where, you know, the covenant's going to be fulfilled, there's a wedding, it's coming, and he transitions from the people's role right into his own. And he weaves together, again, imagery that they, and symbols that they would have been familiar with. And he says that his role is to cast fire, to baptize, and to divide. Now, this, is, this was uh, a lot to kind of wrap my head around. So let me take you through my journey. He says he came to cast fire. We saw this in the upper room, right? Where the tongues of fire came down and rested on everybody. John the Baptist prophesied this over him when he said he comes to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is, was associated with purifying, with complete transformation, and with glory. So we know all of those things are very true of Jesus and his work and his role. He says, I came to baptize. Now, baptism was like you took one object and you dipped it into another. That was what baptism was. Um, so he says, again, going back to the John the Baptist, he says, he comes to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Romans 6 also says that we are baptized into Christ Jesus and we are baptized into his death so we can share in the newness of life. Okay, so he casts fire and baptize. Then there's divide. And I'm just going to read out what he said and then we will dig into it and I will present you what um, my journey with wrapping my head around this very difficult piece of scripture what he said was, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The first things I noticed about this passage because um, first of all, it isn't, if you take it at face value, it seems to contradict prophecy in Old Testament, where it talks about Jesus being the wonderful counselor and the Prince of Peace. It seems to contradict the angelic message that rang in the heavens, peace on earth and goodwill to men. It seems to contradict Paul's writings where he says, as long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, sharing in the unity of the brethren with a common bond of love, right? So when I get it a difficult to understand scripture, I know the lack is not in God and is not in the Bible. The lack is right here. So the first things I noticed about this passage was that it was generational. That, and I thought, you know what? Jesus' work changed the way that people access God. It, wasn't, it was no longer your right to be able to approach God. It was no longer because you happened to be born of Abraham's bloodline. So there was, uh, there was no longer a family lineage in that way. It was it, he ushered in an era 
of individual faith. Every person in every household will now need to decide for themselves if they are going to follow God and live in faith with, in God through Christ. You, can't, you cannot rely on your parents' faith, your grandparents' faith, your brother's faith, your, your spouse's faith. It needs to be your faith. The other thing I noticed was that it was going to be that it was fast. It was like one generation. And we know that the work that Jesus did was fast. It happened on the cross, and then he rose from the dead three days later. It was a split in time that happened very quickly. As I continued to study this out and pray about it, I want to propose to you more. Jesus, we know, was using a very rabbinical style of teaching where they used the environment and they used things that were very culturally relevant. And that included allusions. An allusion is a literary technique that writers will use to reference other pieces of work, art, history, events, historical figures, because it adds complexity and layers to the writing. Rabbis did this a lot. And Jesus, if you start to look at his teachings with this in mind, it will really radically change the way you read the parables. But he used illusions a lot. And I believe he was using an illusion here. So what rabbis would do is they would pick a very unique phrasing from scripture. And that was supposed to act like a keyword search for everybody's mind, because they all knew the scripture, a keyword search for them to scroll through their memory banks and find that passage, and that was your peg. And it was intended to reference the entire passage, not just that phrase. So for example, if we use it, I'll just kind of throw one or two out that would be culturally relevant to us. If you're a sports fan, and you hear I, and I say, practice? You want to talk about practice? Anybody? Jim Mora. Right? Okay. In this country, if I say, we the people, you think Declaration of Independence, maybe you think of Thomas Jefferson, maybe you think of John Hancock, maybe you think of Philadelphia, Liberty, Revolutionary War, Washington, Cobblestone Streets, Betsy Ross, the flag, Fourth of July picnics and fireworks, who knows? It's loaded, right? So this is the same idea that Jesus is using, I think, here in this passage. And when I did a keyword search with Google, not my brain, for the, this phrasing, I found one other place in the Bible where this was used. And that is in Micah 7. And in Micah 7, the peg would have been, for the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Now, if you go back to that passage in Micah 7, you will see right after this passage, there's a shift in the prophecy. And it says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, 
my God will hear me. I think there's more even. Because if we keep digging into this prophecy and you keep reading, you can see threads of the foretelling of Jesus this time. If you go up above, it talks about a prince, a judge, and a great man. Possibly, possibly could be the Sanhedrin, Mark Antony, and King Herod. And if you look into the history of that, you see that they all played roles in installing Herod as the puppet king, who was not a good guy. And in Micah 7, it talks about them being, the best of them was a briar. Okay? And then it talks about this, you know, the enemies in the, old, in the house, that the peg passage. This time in history was very tumultuous. Not only were the Jews unhappy with the Roman rule, but this is a time where the Jews were infighting. There was a lot of civil war within the Jewish community, and it was ugly. So when he quotes this, it is possible that they went back and said, we're living this right now. We, we, we literally are living this right now. And if you go after, uh, if you continue on in Micah 7, past the peg, you see at the very end, it ends with, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? And then it ends with, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. He talks about treading upon iniquities and having compassion. He's, it's the promise, he's talking about the promises of God being fulfilled. The promises given to Abraham all those years ago, they're being fulfilled right now. You can see in this a detailed plan of salvation that would happen suddenly in one generation require an individual decision. That inclusion into God's house would be on an individual level and would be the fulfillment of promises made to Abraham. Sorry, I'm trying to get back to my slides. Then... Somebody in the crowd mentions to Jesus that Pilate has done a horrible thing to some Galileans. Well, actually, I'm going to back up a little bit. Jesus transfers from that, from, you know, these promises are being fulfilled, uses the Micah peg, I believe, and he goes into this, this teaching of you have to know the times that you're in. This is really, really important. And the key phrase used by Jesus in this portion is, why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And he talks about weather, and he talks about being taken before a judge in a lawsuit. And I, I always read those two as totally separate. But as I was looking at this whole sequence of teaching and instead of seeing them as separate, how are they actually connected? I, start, I thought, you know, God, is there a connection? Is there a connection? Because they don't really look connected to me. And what I discovered was that a hot wind, which is what Jesus talks about 
in this passage was associated with judgment. Well, that makes a lot more sense now. Why Jesus would go from a hot wind destroying your crops to a lawsuit. They both had to do with judgment. And he said, it is so important that you know the time that you're in because this judgment is happening. It's going to happen. And the accuser is taking you before the judge. But guess what, guys? You can make settlement before you get there. You don't have to stand accused before the judge. I'm here. I'm making settlement. You can take settlement before you go before the judge. And you don't have to face that accuser. But you have to know the times that you're in. You have to know that you can do that. And you can do that. I'm here. The prophets have foretold of this time. And I'm telling you in rabbinical style, it's here and I'm it. And somebody in the crowd asks about the Galileans. Again, he's talking about judgment. So it makes sense that somebody asks, you know, Pilate did these horrible things to some Galileans. And they're saying, why, was their sin worse than ours? Well, first of all, Galilee was known as a hotbed of political unrest at the time. It was full of violence, multiple insurrectionists, all the time coming out of Galilee to the point that when Jesus came on the scene, a Galilean didn't necessarily mean you were actually physically from Galilee. It, it could have been like a slang term for anybody who wasn't a true Jew or considered a rebel. So the term was very politicized by the time Jesus came on the scene. But regardless of whether the men in question were actually from Galilee or whether they were just considered rebels, Jesus again goes right to the heart of the question. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. His response is basically, no sin is better than another. They all require payment. Stop being so concerned with other people's sins and worry about your own heart and live a lifestyle of repentance. And he goes on to illustrate with another parable in verses 6 to 9 where he uses the image of a fig tree. Now, you might think he's talking about judgment, and they ask about judging, you know, these Galileans, and then he talks about a fig tree? I don't get it. Well, in Jewish culture, a fig tree, the leaves were connected with the, sin, the shame and punishment from sin because Adam and Eve used the fig trees back in Genesis. Also, in Jewish culture, the destruction of a fig tree was associated with God's judgment. But living under a, uh, or having a fruitful fig tree was associated with living in God's blessings and living in righteousness. So, basically what he says in this parable is, you know, he, the, the guy wants to, the vine dresser wants to, uh, a man plants a fig tree in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, 
let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So in other words, again, going back to cultivate your own heart. Cultivate that righteousness and fruitfulness in your own heart. Don't worry about their heart. Worry about your own. Sin is sin, and it all needs to be paid for. So to recap up to this point, Jesus has talked about what not to do. Don't worry about religious systems, fear of man. Don't worry about day-to-day needs. Don't be so concerned and have your heart tied to the things of this world. Live fully for God. Live fully for God. I'm the Messiah. I'm here to fulfill the promises. I'm here to usher in a new era of uh, individual faith and connection with God through faith. And he continues on, and he walks into a synagogue. And there just so happens to be a woman there who was afflicted spiritually and physically for 18 years to the point where she was bent over and couldn't straighten up. Now, Jesus just verbally taught in rabbinical style that he had come to be Messiah and to bring God's freedom and blessing to humanity. And he goes over to the woman and he says, woman, you are freed from your disability. And she was healed. Just like that. The people are excited. The religious leaders are mad. And in the midst of all this, I think Jesus realized they missed the point. The point was that on the Sabbath, the day that they rest in God because God is their all in all, and the day that they take to remember and to celebrate their rest in the Lord, Jesus shows them what that looks like in this new era, freedom from oppression, freedom from sin, freedom from the physical, from all that goes with that, that they are restored to the way that God intended it to be. There's a restoration. And they missed the point. They're, 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 sure, there's a lot of excitement about the healing, but he said there, there was more to this than this woman being healed, which is great. This was a teaching. And what I, I hear him saying in the next verses, he says, well, how else can I show you what I mean? <laughs> I've been telling you, I just showed you, what else can I com- compare the kingdom of God to? I just showed you what it's all about. And he continues his same message. He gave a verbal instruction, and then he, he gave a visual instruction, and then he gives a verbal. And he talks about good old mustard seed. And he says, what? is the kingdom of God like? How else can I tell you? How else can I get this point across? Because this is really important, guys. You don't want to miss it. Oh, mustard. Like the mustard seed. Now, why a mustard seed? Because Jesus uses the mustard seed in multiple teachings. And here he's talking about the kingdom of God. Well, the mustard seed, first of all, it was a very common colloquialism. Because the seed was quite small, not the smallest. It was quite small, but it would become a huge plant. 
because most likely what Jesus was referring to is a black mustard, which grows pretty, very prolifically wherever it is, and it is in Israel. Now, we know um, that the mustard seed, and they would have known in this time, if you go to the next slide, I found these pictures online of somebody who'd been to Israel and took pictures of himself with mustard plants that he found along the side of the road. Now that one, he's standing next to that tall one, it's like eight feet tall. So it's not quite a tree like you would think of with big sturdy branches that birds can actually build nests in. So his Jewish audience would have known that birds aren't building nests in this mustard tree plant. They do like to perch there, but they don't actually build a nest there. But Jesus said that all the birds will build nests in the tree. Do you remember how he started this teaching all the way back in the beginning? He talked about the sparrow, and he talked about the raven. He talked about the clean bird. He talked about the unclean bird. And now he's saying all birds, clean and unclean, Jew and Gentile, are going to come into the kingdom. They are all welcome to dwell in the kingdom of God. But I think there's a little bit more to the mustard and why he chose the mustard. When I looked up black mustard, I discovered there are places that actually forbid the planting of mustard. Why? Because once it is there, you cannot get it out, even with all of our technology and sprays. It is so invasive, those seeds go everywhere, and that when they take root, they germinate very quickly. They're one of the first to germinate after winter. They are probably about the only seed that can withstand a fire. So if there is a forest fire or a fire in the area, they will come up first. They grow very tall. They can get a little bushy. So they hog all the sunlight. Their roots go deep and wide, so they hog all the ground. So basically, mustard will have already taken over before anything else even gets a chance. Isn't that how the kingdom of God is? When you really live for God and his domain, his kingdom, king's domain, it takes over. Nothing else can stand. No fire of hell, no lie, no sin, no bondage can stand next to God's reign. He reigns supreme, and his freedom will reign. And if you want to know where in the scripture he talks about all the birds coming to build a nest, it was another allusion, and you can write this down. I don't have time to read it. It was in Ezekiel 17, 22 to 24. And it is another messianic prophecy. So again, Jesus was referencing Old Testament prophecy and claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah, a Messiah that was for all the birds, sparrows and ravens, Jew and Gentile. And he was here to bring a freedom and a transformation that no uprooting would be able to take over, no stomping, no, no weed sprays, no fire 
He was coming to bring total freedom and total transformation. And when I think about a historical example other than Jesus, because, you know, he was perfect, we're not, um, that I can look to to see that, that lived in this way that, that it just took root so deeply and caused a total transformation that spilled out onto others to bring more transformation and freedom into other people's lives. I think of one of my personal heroes in the faith, Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom was a woman who was a, uh, born into a family of watchmakers, and they hid Jews during World War II in their home. They were outed, and she and her father and her older sister were sent to the concentration camps. And there, there's one story that really sticks out to me. Um, and if you've read her book, maybe it sticks out to you too. Where she and her sister were in with the women in the concentration camp. And her sister said, Corey, the Bible tells us to be thankful in all things. And Corey's like, I don't have much to be thankful for right now. And her sister said, well, the Bible didn't say only when you feel like it. The Bible said to be thankful in all things. So, Corey, we're going to find things to be thankful for. And they took turns, one after the other, finding something, just anything to be thankful for. And the last one before they went to sleep that night that Corey recorded in her book was that her sister said, so the, the game was they each came up with one, and then the other one had to agree that she was also thankful for that same thing. So the last one her sister came up with was God so the area that they were in, they were getting bit constantly by fleas. So, you know, they're laying there on the hard ground and getting more and more tired and just hoping that sleep, you know, takes over for the night. And she said, Corey, I thank God for the fleas. And Corey said, I can't do that one. Can't do it. She said, Corey, God said to be thankful for everything. So I'm thankful for these fleas. Corey said, I took a, took a deep breath because I didn't think I could do this one, but just to make her happy, I said, okay, God, thank you for the fleas. Well, as it turned out, because of those fleas, the guards didn't want to be anywhere near the women. So it gave them freedom to have Bible study. And that caused a radical transformation in people's lives as they shared the message of hope in all circumstances, through Jesus. And women were getting saved. Now, Corey did lose her father and her sister in the concentration camps, and eventually she got freedom. And she bought a home where she set up a place, a safe place for victims to recover from the PTSD of war. And she shared this message of hope. She shared a powerful message of forgiveness. And one day, I might cry. One day, she was faced with the, the ultimate challenge. And one of the Nazi guards that was in charge of where she was came up to her and wanted to shake her hand. And she says, she's very honest in her book. She said, I didn't think I could do it. And he said, Thank you for being a light. And because of your message of Jesus and forgiveness and hope, I have found Jesus. 
and I am sorry for the role that I played. Will you forgive me? And she said, I just stood there. And you know, she thinks, I lost my sister there. I lost my dad there. He went through horrors that nobody should ever have to do, and he was part of that. And she said, but it came back to when you know how pure and how holy God is, you realize sin is sin, and it's all ugly. And she said, I have been forgiven. How could I withhold forgiveness? And she took his hand and said, I forgive you. And she said, in that instant, it broke. It all broke. And she was totally free. Because the power of forgiveness, it is, you know, this freedom from sin and this relationship with God. But it's a two-way street. We have to forgive each other or else we can hold ourselves in bondage. And she went on to have a very powerful ministry all over the world, sharing this message of the power of living in Christ's forgiveness for yourself from sin and also the power of releasing forgiveness to others. And her story continues to inspire many, many people because she did write a book. It's called The Hiding Place. There is a movie also if you don't like to read, but the book is excellent. So Corey Ten Boom, she allowed the kingdom of God to go deep, to go wide, And it transformed her, and it transformed thousands and thousands of people. The prayer and worship teams want to make their way forward. We take a look at all of this scripture, these teachings of Jesus that we can very easily dig into one at a time because there's so much in each one of them. But if we take a look at them as a whole, what can we take away? We have an amazing opportunity, amazing opportunity of a gift of freedom that we can celebrate, but you don't want to wait. Don't wait. Take the opportunity that you have right now to live in the freedom of Christ. You don't need to worry. You just need to have faith and believe the faith of your father, your mother, your grandpa, your grandpa, your husband, your wife, your kids, your cousins is not going to save you. It is an individual decision. You need to decide for yourself. If you are here today and you have not made that decision to follow Christ, I want to invite you to come. There is freedom for you. There is freedom and restoration and healing in Jesus. If you are here today and you are Christian, but there's some, there's a little pocket in your life that hasn't quite come under his domain and you're struggling. There's maybe an area that you're wrestling to live and experience the freedom of Christ in. I want you to come forward as well and the prayer team will be happy to pray with you.